0: Hello, and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the Spotlight is on Yorma and Vanessa Kaukinen who together own and operate the Fur Peace Ranch, a place where, in their words, they grow guitar players, and where they've been originating an ongoing series of quarantine concerts since April of 2020. Yorma is a rock and roll hall of famer and co-founder of two iconic bands, the Jefferson Airplane and Hot Tuna. Vanessa manages the family businesses, utilizing not only her background in engineering and design, but also her empathic qualities as a health coach and healer. Before I tell you more about today's episode, I'd like to tell you about something else near and dear to me, live concerts. Due to the ongoing COVID pandemic, attending live concerts is not an option right now, and many of our neighborhood independent venues are at risk of closing forever. The fight to save the local music scene can be joined by following the hashtag #SaveOurStages. This effort is brought to you by NEVA, the National Independent Venue Association, a 501c6. Check it out. At the Fur Peace Ranch, Yorma and Vanessa Kaukinen host guitar students of all ability levels for small group instruction from Yorma and his master musician friends, a sampling of which includes GE Smith, Arlo Guthrie, Jack Cassidy, Warren Haynes, Patty Larkin, Jimmy Dale Gilmore, Roy Bookbinder, and many, many others. A brilliant pairing of artistic and engineering temperaments. Yorma and Vanessa tell the story of discovering the ranch land in 1989 and building out the property over the next 30 years. Today they use the 200-seat Fur Peace Station Theater to broadcast an ongoing weekly series of quarantine concerts, which find Yorma engaging with his songbook and musical history in ways he hadn't been doing before, despite playing scores of shows every year for many, many years. Yorma defined that you don't want to meet your hero's stereotype. He and Vanessa were wonderfully open with their personal and professional tales, including incredibly warm shares about Grace Slick, the Reverend Gary Davis, and the fundamental nature of the blues. We also discovered our shared membership in a secret club and discussed my cameo appearance on a Yorma live album. Please enjoy my conversation with Yorma and Vanessa Kaukinen.
1: Hey, Lawrence, how are you?
0: I'm great, man. How are you? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I'm fine. I've got Vanessa sitting next to me here also.
2: Hi, oh, wonderful. Good morning. If you want me to get stuck, I'll be here.
0: Well, thanks for making time. It's great to speak with you. Where are you? I'm in beautiful, sunny Seattle, Washington. Wow. Oh. Fancy that.
2: The, epic- the epicenter
0: <laughs> yeah yeah we have the yeah. dubious distinction yeah
1: the epicenter's moved on you're okay
0: <laughs> it's uh it's part of the two months out of the year where it's actually beautiful to be here
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I remember living in northern california it's it's you know you move there on those days that are beautiful and then you realize there's five of them a year
0: yeah exactly i moved here about Four years ago, I was in New York for the better part of twenty years. But when I first moved out here, um, you know, I was feeling sort of out of sorts and away from home. And lo and behold, there was an electric hot tuna show booked at the north, uh No, not the north, The Neptune Theater here in Seattle. And uh, it yeah. was part of the uh, it was part of the comfort food that helped me ease my transition to uh, my new environment. So <laughs> I owe you a debt of gratitude for that. We're there. We're there for you. <laughs> Always have been. Always have been. Yeah.
1: So maybe maybe we'll get to play the Neptune Theater again someday. Who knows?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I hope so, and I hope they're still there to be able to um, to be able to host you. Uh, so that's a, totally. a pretty Absolutely. serious issue. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk to you today, you know, about the um about the impact of COVID situation on you know your life as a touring musician sure. or as a business person, and uh, specifically about the quarantine uh, concerts you've been doing. And uh, I hope we might be able to talk, um, if you could just give me a little context or give our listeners context um, about the history of the ramp and sort of how, um, you know, I, I don't want to assume what people know about the history of furpees and how it got sure. to where what it is today. Well, listen,
1: this, it's really good that we have Vanessa here right now because I'm gonna hand this one off to her
2: because she, you know, I,
1: I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a productive partner She's really a prime mover, so I'm aiming the phone of her.
2: I'm just going to hold on a second. So back in 88, Yorma got a. We were living in Woodstock, New York, and Yorma got a call from an old friend that he hadn't seen, I don't know, maybe 20 years or so, 30 maybe, and I could hear the guy talked really loud and I could hear his pre cell phones and I could hear his voice like bellowing over the phone and he was saying, Yorma, i got this land for sale. And I'm listening to Yorma, yeah, yeah, Southeast Ohio, yeah, cool, cool, cool. And I'm standing off to the side like motioning, hang the phone up like buying land in Ohio, Are you nuts. And Yorma hung the phone up, he goes, I'm going to grab a flight, I'm going to go check out this property. So well, we had really you'd only been married uh i don't know a year actually
1: it was, it was 89 it
2: was a year it was, it was, it was a year yeah because yeah, it was winter we got right. married uh december 7th 1988. so you are on to have the plains with columbus drives down southeast ohio meets these guys these guys were movers and shakers back in the 60s that's all i'm going to say um <laughs> and they Showed him around the property. Now a winter in Southeast Ohio is a, like anywhere else that experiences a winter with you know everything gray and dead and hibernating. It was abysmal looking, but Yorma, something about this land, it was it was bigger than the land. Just was whispering in Yorma's ear the whole time. A couple of days later, he comes home. I couldn't get a hold of him because we didn't have cell phones. You know, you just wait until you're your person called back in those days, and he comes back a couple days later with a deed, like a promissory deed. I'm like, "What's this?" Yeah, about 119 acres for 500 an acre. And I looked at him. I'm like, "Maybe it's, we'd both been married before." I'm like, "Maybe it's been a while." I go, "But you're really supposed to check with your spouse first before you go doing these things." And I said, "Don't utter a word. We're not telling." anyone we own land in Ohio, we're going to get rid of this albatross. Well, a year later, we were packed up like the Beverly Hillbillies moving to this piece of property that had nothing on it. In the interim, we had found a little farmhouse, a little pre-Civil War farmhouse, eight miles down the road from this property. And that's where we moved. And it was, those were sad times for me. I was not a happy camper. Um, and this what kind is, of environment were you used uh,
0: to living in? Were you a city person? Were you a, like, what was your, what was the biggest jarring part so, of it? No,
2: I'm at Yorma. I was living in Key West. I was, had <laughs> uh, gone down there to, ta- I know, I'd gone down there to uh, do a design job um, for a company that had just purchased the old uh, Truman Annex Navy base, which was, You know, back in the 40s, Thursday, 40s, it was like Camp David, Harry Truman's little white house. I mean, this developer, I worked for the developer's wife. uh, He purchased this whole property and was turning it into a resort and what have you. So I was down there after a newly, you know, I was newly divorced and life was pretty darn good. But this comes out in a lot of stories that we do as a couple and even separately. I was not sober then and neither was Norma. So I could have been living in the Taj Mahal and I would not have been happy. So we moved to Ohio. This is the short version. Moved to Ohio. We did nothing with this land for a couple of years. I got sober and... My sister and I, you know, we we had all we made a joke in Woodstock that we, this is where we're going to live. We were going to, you know, build a build a guitar camp, a ranch that grew guitar players, and it was a joke. So my sister and I uh, were close in age, two years. She's brilliant. I was a civil engineer prior and had gone into design. So. We just started with this blank piece of property, came out here with an architect, walked it off. I originally said, you know, okay, we got some bottomland here. We'll build everything on still, you know. As a as an engineer, I should have known that you never build on bottom land. But uh the architect, local architect, then, you know, disappeared into the thicket and I'm holding this huge like two hundred foot tape measure, and he disappears into the thicket and he's like, yep, yep, yep. He comes out, and he's like covered with briars. He says, we can build it right here. And I'm looking at him like, you're nuts. You're just as crazy as my husband. You know, what am I doing here? And you know what we did? We hired another local, you know, we're in farm country here. I, I met this wonderful contractor. His name is Bob Jones. He's an artist with a backhoe. He came up here and basically leveled that thicket, and lo and behold, the site appeared. It was here. It, I believe that's, this is getting a little woo-woo. I believe that's what was whispering to Yorma, but he couldn't see it.
0: Yeah. So
2: a year later, you know, I had the initial plans, took it to an architect because I can't stamp any drawings. Um, in the midst of becoming, becoming a civil engineer, I got divorced. And so I did everything except take my final exam so I could stamp drawings. I would have, I worked, I worked for firms, you know, where, they the principals would get everything approved. Anyways, took to an architect, yep, yep, we can do this. You know, meanwhile, this is in the middle of nowhere, but I believed that we could create a school, and the whole while, Yorma was, you know, okay, okay, if you say so. In the interim of us building this, Yorma got sober, so we built The initial stage of the Furkees Ranch, which was 17 double occupancy cabins, a workshop, a small theater, a a workshop, small theater space, they shared the same space, a two story library, and a 150 year old log cabin, which was our dining hall. And over the years, you know, it's grown to we have 126 acres, uh, we have a 200 seat theater, and we've had a uh, NPR live radio show, that's, which is where our quarantine concerts are uh, recorded and filmed now for, I think, 17 years. It's going to be going on 17 years? Oh
1: my gosh, I think it's,
2: I think it's longer. No, it is longer than
1: that. It's just, I just got to be 20.
2: This might be our 20th year yeah. for the theater. We have a new morning cafe. So we have a gallery cafe. We have an outdoor grill and kind of a takeout place for the, the ticket holders that come in. And it's all, you know, pre- we have a grill. So we do food fresh, but we have prepared uh, desserts and coffees and peas and stuff like that. And a couple of years ago, five, six years ago, I had a brilliant idea after going into a Silo in upstate New York that was supposed to be the world's largest kaleidoscope, and it's on um, 28 Route 28 yeah. up in in between Woodstock and Phoenicia. And so we were teaching up at the New Moon, another facility. We do we we visit other facilities once a year, Full Moon uh, Resort. And so while Yorma was teaching. I took off to explore the area. I hadn't been back to Woodstock in, you know, a long time. And there was this world's largest kaleidoscope built by back in the 60s by the father and son. And it was in a silo next, attached to the Emerson resort. And I, I kaleidoscope, who doesn't love a kaleidoscope? So we go in this thing, silo, about 10 feet in circumference. You went in, they shut the lights off. They had this recorded voice of a, kind of a Bob Barker type voice and you, you lay on these little carpeted platforms and you're looking up at this kaleidoscope and it literally was a real kaleidoscope with all of the glass and 16 different panels. But the recording and the video was put in these panels and you saw, you know, 16 different versions of an animation appeared and it was the history of America and, and they started the animation with washington in, in 16 different panels you know 16 different versions of of washington crossing the delaware this little cartoon and they go through the you know industrial era and then they go they get to the 60s i'm cutting out a lot here but this is this is where my brilliant idea to have a silo came in they get to the 60s and they show a pot leaf and the pot leaf's got 16 different versions of it and they're playing the rolling stone like some i don't satisfaction i don't remember what it was and John, my ranch manager, is with me. And I look over at him and I smack him. like I go, what? The? I also gave up cursing. But I said, what the bleep is this? And this isn't the 60s. And so we left, you know. I, and I, I didn't even make it out of the silo. I'm in the guest uh, kind of uh, gift shop area of the Emerson Hotel because it was attached. And I said, this is BS. I'm like, I'm going to build a silo. And I'm gonna show what the '60s really was about. And he's like, "Yeah, okay, okay." Like you're nuts. And a year and a half later, I found a silo, which is actually a grain bin, uh, brand new, from a company in St. Louis. They're—it's called Brock. They're all—they're dotted all over the Midwest. I had it shipped on a flatbed. And 10 different parts and hired a local farmer because they know how to put up silos. And we put up this silo and I built the gallery and it's called the Silodelic gallery. It's P S Y L L P E L I C. And it hosts honors, celebrates and teaches about an era in the sixties from 1962 to 1969. Wow. uh, With art, so, I have a Garcia's Garcia exhibit. Uh, yesterday, I just put up a Ram Dass exhibit. I've had Grace Flick's art, Marty Ballon's art. I had Jeannie Rose, who made clothes for everybody. I've had her stuff. I've got Baron Woman's photography, which is a permanent uh, exhibit. I've had the guitars that were at Woodstock. I had the sleeping bag that Wavy slept in it, Wavy Gravy slept in it, Woodstock. I've had... Jack's clothes from Woodstock. I've got jewelry from Monterey.
1: And we teach guitar
2: lessons, too. And we teach. So that's just gallery. the gallery. The other part, that was just a side thing. I had no business doing that. We ran, we opened a school. We were supposed to be doing the school. And the school is successful. I have a 97% return rate of students. I incredible. Might be so still have, I still have an addictive personality.
0: No. <laughs> well, well, I will say this. I, I appreciate yeah. you bringing that element into the conversation because uh, I'm in I'm in the club with you as well. So I am in the secret society of uh, of right. uh, of, oh. uh, of that share <laughs> that affliction with you. And uh, it it remind I, I wanted to tell you a story about um, that sort of ha- has something to do with that. I so you know I've been uh, I've been. Seeing Yorma in various configurations probably since maybe the mid '80s or so when when he sort of got back on the road uh, with Jack and you know I've seen all the configurations solo duo electric uh, you know, the string band blue country all that stuff and uh, always I, I, I've I've always felt like it was going to see an old friend but back in the days when I was sort of an an ardent aficionado of the of the drink um, I had a habit of I would heckle. And um, whenever I would go see Yorma and Jack wasn't there, I would yell out, where's Jack? And my friends would always, like, they would cringe waiting for me to do it. And Yorma, you've you've heard my voice, (laughs) I can assure you. And um, it actually made it onto one of your official releases. And um, you put out out a show from Toad's Place um, in New Haven um, in your digital download series. And I yelled out, where's Jack? And you said, (laughs) sort of grumbling, he said, I think he's out with the hovercraft. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so I have a friend of mine now, uh, whenever we talk about some friend, you know, any, any third party male friend of the abstract, they'll say, yeah, I think he's out with the hovercraft.
1: <laughs> Good times. Good times. Good
0: times. Yeah. So anyway, I've made my mark on a rock and roll hall of famer. Um, so absolutely. <laughs> you've you've built what um you know you've built this incredible sort of cottage industry which is a mixture of it's it's sort of to me an amazing american story of having just enough crazy vision and just enough crazy resources to, <laughs> to realize your vision exactly it also strikes me that um you know you're sort of like exactly the right people for this blank canvas that you came across or Actually, when Vanessa was describing the prior patch and the architect, the thing that came to mind was um, a sculpture and sort of how a sculpture can right. just look at a chunk of rock or a chunk of clay and see something hiding inside of it and they just have to go dig for it. That's what it sounds like you've been doing with the ranch is that it's this unformed piece of earth that you just, you've just whittled away at it and uncovered all these beautiful things underneath it. Well, you know, yeah, in the... In,
1: in the spirit of that secret society, we've we've sort of alluded to, you can make plans, but you can't plan the outcome. You know, we, you know, it's, it's just interesting the way, the way life sometimes gives you unexpected gifts. And, and, you know, and for us, like I said, the, the I just it's funny, we were just kind of talking about this, this morning a little bit. We really are the perfect partners for things like this, because, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the vision or really the inclination to do what's necessary to make this happen because it requires, it requires on some level, regardless of how wacky the idea is, it requires the same person to make the infrastructure work, you know. Yeah. And, and also, um, you know, just, just in terms of what, what in the beginning, well, about what I brought to the table here, which was somebody that liked to teach, which, which oddly, you know, you know, being a professional musician really all my life, I I always really enjoyed teaching I started out doing that before I got in the airplane and in fact I continued it the first year the airplane was together and made more money teaching than I did with the band so 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 there was that aspect of it also um, To to bring to the table and and also I think our vision here because There's a lot of people that kind of do what we do, but nobody that exactly does it There's a lot of great there's a lot of workshops and this and that but for me the guitar has really been so much more than, than just the music, although obviously it's, you know, 99.9% of the music, but, but there are those social aspects of it too. You know, gu- guitar playing to me has always been a very social event, you know, um, and I don't play saxophone, but it just seems to me like guitar players are just more sociable than sax players. I don't know. Some sax players going to hate me for saying that, but, but, uh, so, so when we started to teach, and I realized that my, my method of learning and it was and still is very anecdotal. You know, I, I, I listen to things. I try to figure out what's going on. I try to figure out how it relates to what I can do, et cetera, et cetera. So, so my teaching style has always been very anecdotal. It's not like cut and dried. And, you know, people find me, well, I need a tab of this and that. I'm not a tab guy. If they want it, I'll help somebody do it. But, but that's not me. So anyway, so to, to bring this sort of sociable, anybody can do this. Some people are better at it than others, but anybody can do this thing to the, to the infrastructure that Vanessa's vision created here really worked out pretty well. And uh, and the guests, you know, we have all these great guest instructors. We'll, we'll get to the pandemic at some point because obviously everything's changed in the last half a year, but, but, uh, but the instructions that we get there, everybody's got their own method, but still it's the same thing. It's a social thing. It's a good hang. And I, almost everybody, I, I'm trying to be moderately accurate, almost everybody has a really good time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That vibe comes across. Um, that vibe definitely comes across. It, it, um, I mean, just the fact that if you're a guitar aficionado or, or a student or a nerd, however you want to phrase it, and you find yourself traveling to rural Ohio go hang out with some of the instructors that are in the course you know in the course materials never mind right with yorma um it's pretty clear it's, it's it would be pretty it, it seems like it'd be pretty difficult for it to be a bad time
2: <laughs> right yeah, one of the things
1: we've noticed is, is that and we've been very fortunate too because you know i mean anybody who has a business where you deal with the public realize that dealing with the pub- public is always fraught with peril you know? yeah <laughs> but but, the, but but like I said, people that come down to business here, for the most, really, almost to a person, have pretty much the same, the same vision uh, that we do. And that's a good thing.
2: And yeah. one of the really yeah. important things that we didn't know was an important thing, like, like uh, so much was manifested after the fact. But it really happened because of sobriety. When I said, you know, Southeast Ohio is abysmal, that's what we saw when we first discovered when this when this property found us the winters the landscape spring summer all of it it is southeast Ohio is one of the most stunning places on the planet and I've been a lot of places I've been a lot of places it looks a lot like the south of France we have trailers they have castles. but the landscape is so beautiful, and the magic of the land is felt by the students because of what the universe offered us in exchange for honoring our bodies, honoring our lives, saying, you know, because at one point, and I'll speak for your man, that at some point, you know, we both uttered those words just just save my sorry, you know what, and I'll do whatever, you know, get me out of this. I'll, 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 I'll be better. I'll, I'll do what you want me to do. I did say that. I said that on my knees and this was it. This was that gift. And it is a struggle to keep 126 acres functioning during a pandemic. It is a struggle to, uh, keep, you know, Yorma's all Yorma shows have been taken away, uh, Yorm is a a, um, he does drones. He flies drones, and he took one of the most beautiful shots of the of the property. He takes them all the time, but the other day, this shot is, and I'll I'll send it to you because I have your email, and you can see how beautiful it is, and what an amazing place it is to be quarantined. Um, We have everything we need to still reach our audience, to still um introduce the beauty of the land and the and the special uh ability that Yorma has to teach his music and the shows, you know. We didn't know the shows were gonna heal up. We keep doing them because we keep need, we we keep, you know, needing and that healing because this this COVID has robbed us all of so much. Uh but the blessings of this pandemic are things like the quarantine concert, and Yorm is teaching virtually, you know, one on one in small group classes. He is still able to teach in that dynamic way that he is known for virtually, like, like he could do in person. We talk about the magic of her piece. I really believe that this place is special. And so, when you know you you get back what you put out we are extremely grateful that we're able to do what we do right now in this time
0: it sounds like it's another manifestation of the idea that you know one view of this could be that you're putting this out there to help other people get through the pandemic but really by helping other people you're really helping yourselves as well absolutely absolutely
2: turned out to be you know when I did my three-year plan I didn't see any of this Maybe the bank makes you do a three-year plan and you're like I don't know okay we're going to need this much paper we're going to need this many staff we're going to need this much food we need this many supplies this many guitar stands throw the three-year plan out after the first month because it means nothing <laughs> we ended up needing more than we thought spending three times what we thought we'd spend and that first year was I thought oh goodness oh goodness well, I don't think we're going to be able to do this. But what we were offered back was a 97% return rate of students. And it really was that field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. You know, I'm going to use the word God, whatever God is to you, because God is something very different to me. I'm not, um, I believe in a power greater than me, but I'm not a religious person. But, you know, this was God's given us everything that we absolutely need to do this good. And it's really hard. It's really hard to run a luxury business. You know, people don't need you. They want you. Well, wants go out the window when anything goes wrong uh, with the economy or jobs or family or anything. But I have had 3,000 students say to me, no, you don't understand, Vanessa. We need you. Because we, we apparently fulfill that same thing that is given to us every time we open a camp, that, that grateful, you know, it's like, okay, God, I get it. This is what you want me to do. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to do this. Well, when they come here, when our students come here, we plug them into something that they can't get in the real world and their jobs on wall street and their, you know, legal offices. and it's, it's,
1: You know, in, in the beginning, um, does that make sense? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, in, in the beginning, you know, when we first started out, people would go uh, not people that have been here, but there's a part, there's a conversation out in the world about that. We're a fantasy camp, which was, I found offensive. I mean, first of all, I look. Hey, listen. Whatever it takes, to have fun for everybody. I encourage them to have fun. However, you know, if you think my my, my thought of a of a fantasy camp was was like a, a guy, probably younger than me, but not a kid, dressing up like Jim Dandy in Black Oak, Arkansas, pretending to rock and roll stuff. I mean, Jim Dandy. I mean, that's a that's a that's a frightening thought. So I was sort of offended by that, but. But anyway, so but that but, but that's my problem. <laughs> but in any case, yeah, it's just just that you know all of a sudden we, we seem to find an interesting place and and you of course you can't plan this kind of stuff. The other thing too is, is like you know you know invoking the, this pandemic nonsense. Uh, I played my last show at a casino in St. Louis with
2: uh, March third
1: with with Hot Tuna March third, and after that we were going to have our unless. And I'm not complaining because it could be worse. But uh, we were going to have our best year ever oh at God. the ranch and touring. I mean, this was we the, had
2: Carnegie Hall. Yeah, we had all kinds of for Yorma's 80th birthday in December. And yeah, we, we had can't. all kinds of stuff. But like everybody else, <laughs> all that has changed, you
1: know. But now, if, if you think about being being quarantined, you know, having 126 acres with all these buildings and stuff, that's not the same thing as one of my one of my good buddies who's, who's, who's a financially comfortable but living in like a three room apartment with his wife and three kids, you know, in London. I mean, because that's the deal. So, so, you know, we talk every now and then I go, man, I feel for you. I really, I mean, I can wander around, I can do this and that. And also, you know, because I don't live in, because I live in a rural area, we haven't been hit as hard yet with the pandemic. Although thanks to some of the students coming back and being, you know, uh, not being, sensible it's coming here too but in any case so I guess Ness and I again were just talking about this morning we have a 14 year old daughter that's about to be a sophomore in high school it's been tough on her but like I told her and my son who's in college at least you guys aren't graduating this year you know but you know more will be revealed I'm sure before this is all over but so so their world has been turned upside down and my son's a young man he's working and stuff like that so it's different but but all, the, all these little dreams we all had when we were in high school that my daughter has and stuff, that's not happening. That's out the window. And it's probably not going to happen. Who knows? Well, now. it's
2: out the window for now.
1: Yeah, for now. Because I, we
2: don't know. No, we Nothing don't. will reveal itself. T- totally.
0: But, well, but and for the kids, important. all they have is right now, right? They have no contact. Everything's so immediate when you're no, that age. No, no, they like, don't. so heightened. But what,
1: but what they do have, and the guys like me don't have, is time, you know, so so that's one way to look at it. But the other thing is, look, you know, we, we've been so fortunate that, you know, we don't have a mortgage, you know, we own this piece of property. So we've been okay here. And, you know, I started to do the Corona concerts because we can't do real concerts right now because we just can't. And so we started doing them and it was, I mean, it, it gave me purpose again because I play the guitar all the time, but I like playing for people. So, So even though there's nobody in the audience but us, I know you guys are out there. I can feel it, you know. And so all of a sudden, it just it just became hugely important. You know, people thank us for it, and I go, "You're so welcome." But thanks for listening. We do it anyway. And then we started to get like donations and stuff like that, which we didn't even solicit in the beginning. So and we that would,
2: helped pay for the crew that that's volunteers right. their time. So we've we been able to pay so for the crew. So we can pay the crew.
1: We have been so you know we've been so blessed in this whole process that I've been able to keep my identity and share some of that with people who give a darn about what we're doing.
2: And, you know, the questions, the Q&A stuff, you know, a lot of the stuff Yorma wrote in the book, but there's there's stories, the book. there's stories that have come out that were not in the book. So we're like, okay, you got another book in you. And Yorma's attention to like detail when he's remembering things, like he talked about my daughter was, she runs the long shot camera and and we had some friends because we invited uh, her, one of her friends and their parents, and we, we isolate them in the back of the room, but at least she can see one of her friends. And I'm like, you know, telling i okay, keep it clean, you know? And he <laughs> talked about his father getting dosed and all the acid melt stuff, and I'm like sitting there, you know, with my hand across my neck, no, no, no. And, and it turned out to be really an amazing story. And... And what transpired with these Q and A's is Yorma going so deep and dissecting that question. Like someone will say, Hey, how do you feel about so-and-so or "Oh, tell us about the motorcycle ride you took with uh,
1: Hunter Hunter
2: Thompson and Yorma, the motorcycle detail, the, the, you know, everything about Hunter, you know, what he was thinking at the time. It wasn't just, Hey, yeah, that was cool. And so these stories have, really opened up this whole other level of appreciation uh that yorma's fans had for him for his ability to play but um they look forward to it every saturday night and it's their you know it's the one night that they after because a lot of people are still working some people aren't working people are working from home every we're all everyone's lives have changed so Yorma, these Yorma said that these concerts have given him purpose. They're doing the same for people that are sitting there. They're forgetting about. I'm gonna just say it. They're forgetting about Donald Trump for you know yeah. an hour and a half. There you said it. I said it. Now you know <laughs> it's out it, in the open. I, I stand. <laughs> um, and it really, yeah. I don't tell Yorma the question. I don't tell them what I'm going to ask them. They come to me, and I weed a lot of them out because a lot of them are repeats. And you know, no one wants to know who slept with everybody slept with Grace. The only person who didn't sleep with Grace was Marty. So I won't ask you know, oh is it true he slept with Grace? I won't ask you all those questions because um, it's none of their damn business, anyways. Yeah. And the good news about Yama's stories is he still doesn't dish dirt on anyone. He owns his part in the story. And that's yeah. refreshing for people. We're painfully honest people. You better be careful when you ask, ask a, us a question.
0: Yeah, don't I mean, don't I ask had, questions you don't want the answer to.
2: <laughs> I had a like a, a simple. I went to my favorite coffee shop. I just wanted my drink, and the owner wanted to make the drink like they do in Italy. And I said, I don't want. If I wanted an Italian espresso, I'd go to Italy. And she, well, she goes. You're so honest. I'm like, take my drink. I'm like, <laughs> you
0: know. Yeah. I get that a lot, lot out see. here as well. Being from New York, at, uh, the uh, sure. when I first came to Seattle, it was, you got to slow down, man. You got to, you got to, you got to take the long way to get there. <laughs> That's funny stuff. Um,
1: it's I, important.
2: I, I think the honesty that comes out in your stories has really, there are people that look forward to the Q and A, Sometimes more than whatever song he's going to play,
0: you know something about the q and a that strikes me and, and I, I I wonder if you if you guys agree with what I'm about to say, which is I feel like the sort of like stage banter and engaging with the crowd wasn't really part of yorma's like stage presentation um when you go see him you know live in the in the real world there's there's sort of a bare minimum of you know he might laugh at a heckler or 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 tell a very quick anecdote, but I don't. I, I don't think of Norma as the kind of artist who gets up there and sort of raps at the crowd. Um, so I think that's a really interesting, different um, piece of just the artistic presentation of the of this series. Is that you know you get the you get some insight into the, you know the breadth of the repertoire because you can watch so many shows and it's like oh my god like. I go see Yorm and I get, you know, 18 songs, but you realize there's 300 more that <laughs> that he has the ability to pull out, but there's also um, it's a different, it's a, it's not the same show that you've seen for the last however long you've been a fan. There's a different, now, this is a different medium, and uh, I wonder what your thoughts well, you're,
1: are. Yeah, well, you're, you're absolutely right about that, and I, and, you know, I, I mean, I don't said I don't, I don't like script my life, because that's not who I am, but but when we started to do this and of course it's evolved on some level too like you know you talk about when i'm doing a show i'm you know depending on the audience depending on what the audience has going on i might or might not be a chatty cafe i'm normally not although over the years jack and i have and i've started to banter more and say it's just because it's fun but but for the most part i don't think i thought about it like this back then but since i'm doing things differently now i think about look if I'm going to do a concert, I'm not Ramblin' Jack Elliott where the concert is Ramblin' Jack, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, if I'm going to do a do a concert, I'm I want I'm there to play songs and that's what I'm going to do. You know, if we, we get some banter going, fine, but, but, but that's not really what my show is about. That being said, when we got into this Corona concert thing too, you know, Vanessa and I just, we dialogue on the show just like we do at home. That's who we are. And so, so, and, you know, every now and then you get somebody who goes, well, we want more music and, and less talk. And, and you know, I, I could be flipping about it and I might be to Vanessa off mic. But but the, but the truth of the matter is, and I've said and I've sort of alluded to this, is look, if you're paying to see a concert, I'm going to give you a concert. But this is free. And if you don't want to listen to it, you don't have to. But what you get is what Vanessa and I bring to the table. And part of it is, is that banner. It's the kind of thing that I think I enjoyed in some of those older variety shows, you know, you know, back in the, you know, the quote-unquote the golden age of television, where, yes. you know, you'd have artists doing this and that, but there'd also be just some, some funny talking, and, you know, we're not doing we're not doing stick, but on some level it is our stick. That's who we are, you know, and and we've really found that to be a lot of fun, and so, you know, if people don't like it, sorry because yeah. that's what we're doing. And, you know, and Vanessa, Vanessa feels all of these all of these things on uh, whatever media. I, I'm not a Facebook guy, so I don't do any of that kind of stuff, but, but she's got chat things going while the is going on. And, and we really get some, I mean, some funny stuff really pops up. It's like, holy mackerel, these people are human beings, you know? But <laughs> they are, you know? But the good news is, 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 is we get to do what it is that we want to do, and that's how it is. And, you know, again... You know, from the point of view, we 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 sort of been dancing around the re- the recovering person concept. But you know, I spent so many years. I I didn't get sober until I was my mid fifties. I'm about to be almost eighty years old. So so it's been a while. But you know, but but it took me most of my life to not be afraid to engage. You know, to engage honestly. And so so the the ability to do that to me is such a blessing. Given a We'll be right here Vanessa. Yeah. she's she's about right. to do some 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 serious stuff it's it's such a blessing you know to not be afraid to not be fearful of showing people who you are and being able to engage in some sort of a productive conversation now, I'm not talking about burying my soul and uh you, you know <laughs> you know doing a you know doing a fifth step or whatever and that kind of stuff that's not what we're talking about you know but just to be who I am and to be okay with that is a cool thing, and yeah, and, just and,
0: going up, you know.
1: Yeah. And 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 the venue that we have to do that with a quarantine concert, it's like, yeah, this is really fun. Again, you know, to get back to how this conference, this little snip started about uh, about concerts. Again, if I'm at a concert, that's my goal. There is to give a concert, and if if I get an audience that's not just me, that's not just some heckler, we all know what we're talking about. Hey thanks to the where's jack by the way no i'm just kidding uh you know uh you know but so, sometimes you get sometimes you get a get an audience that actually does somebody that d- does invite that conversation but it doesn't happen often and i don't seek it out anyway yeah, does that make any sense yeah. at all
0: no it absolutely does and i think um i think it it's and again, it, it, it's some insight into what the difference is between what you're doing now and what you do when um I, I really like the distinction that you make of you know, when somebody buys a ticket to Hot Tuna or Yorma Show, um, they there's a specific thing they're buying a ticket to. When they show up on Saturday sure, night and, and, and click on the live stream, that's a different thing. And um it's to the medium, absolutely. it speaks to the times. Yeah, yeah. So um how you know I, I I, I had a list of questions that you guys sort of answered um, about how this all came together, but I'm curious, um, if you don't mind me nerding out a little bit on, Yeah, go ahead. At, at any given time, what's the breadth of your repertoire that you could, that you could construct a set list from? Like how many songs? Do you oh, have to put?
1: Okay. yeah. So, so one of the things, yeah, uh, that, that's, that's a good question. Be- because, you know, one of the, again, uh, there've been many blessings hidden along with, with, what's happened to us all here. And one of the things is, is that, you know, you know, Jack and I know a lot of songs, and, and I know a lot of songs at any, at any given time. But there's also lots of stuff that's fallen by the wayside for whatever reason over the years. So when we started out doing the show, my goal, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to repeat stuff again, even though I've got about 140 songs to pick from. But in the beginning, my whole thing was I'm not going to repeat anything on any given weekend. And I wanted to resuscitate At least one and maybe two songs that have not been played for decades, and so I I normally don't listen to my own work, but but I've gone back and done this um, to to pick pick stuff out, and uh, and so I go, wow, you know, here's a, oh wow, great, here's here's Great Divide revisited, man, I haven't played that, probably haven't played that song in 35 years, I don't even remember how it goes. I think I'll, uh, uh, let me, let me find the record. And then, and then here's the funny thing. Then I go looking around and I've got the vinyl, but I'm, I'm way beyond lifting up the needle and putting it back and forth like we did in the old days to have to learn something. And so I've wound up having to go, if it's not still available, having to go to eBay and buy my own CD so I can get the thing in and learn the song, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I now have a complete collection of all my airplane and hot tuna CDs as a result of the pandemic as things I bought so I can learn these old songs. And so I've gone back in to things I haven't played in years. And, you know, when you're playing gigs, it keeps you sharp with your show, but, uh, but that's not practicing. I've had the opportunity to go back and actually practice the guitar in a way that I haven't in decades. Not because I didn't want to, but just because I don't, because when you play, you're playing like, you know, two, three hours a night, whatever it is. And then when you're home, you do what you're doing. I, I, it just hasn't been part of my life. So, I, so, I, so the guitar has invited me back into its house again to not just relearn old things, but to apply the some of the new stuff, the, you know, harmony ideas, this and that, that I've learned over the years. Is it going to screw a song up if I use a fancy jazz chord here? And the answer to that is usually yes, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I'll take the time to try it and see if it works, et cetera. Anyway, so, so the magic of the guitar that, that sort of seduced me so many years ago is alive and well, and I've had the time and the necessity to answer its call.
0: That's amazing. What's the difference um, functionally um, between playing you know, three or four nights a week on the road and practice. Why, why is that not the same?
1: Well, I think that, you know, I talked about this a little bit one about one of the, without actually getting into the skin of it. Um, you know, when, 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 when I'm doing my show, I'm focusing on what it takes to, to, to know any given song well enough. So I'm not going to make a fool out of myself playing it now. You know, that being said, and I tell students all the time, look, everybody makes mistakes. I don't care how good you are. But it's the recovery factory and your, your ability to keep smiling when that happens. But, but when, I, when I practice things, maybe I'll pick something like, well, let's, for example, on my Stars My Crown album, I do this song of, it's sort of like a paraphrasing of Reverend Davis's version of a, of a spiritual a gospel song called Stars of My Crown. And it's a bear to play. It is, I mean, you know, I've, I, I haven't, I know how it goes, but it's not performance ready. So I've been practicing that to bring it back to where it's performance ready because, again, it's a hard song to play. And so I want to be able to get through this. So to be able to focus on the details um, that make a song sound, for lack of a better word, professional, rather than some – rather than a student this is the process of learning something just wants to show somebody what they're doing. That makes so, sense. Yeah. So, so that's a huge, so that's a huge difference. And the other thing too is is that the, the Corona concert, I mean, our, our our quarantine concert, I played a plugged in guitar the first night we did it. And after that, I went, listen, we're in a fabulous acoustic room. I happen to own a bunch of really great acoustic guitars. Why plug in? And so, and so ever since we did that, everything's just been completely au natural. You know, you know, for us, us us, and I use the term loosely, acoustic guitar players that plug in, we buy all these all these gadgets and all this stuff to make it sound like we're not plugged in, you know. But uh, but here we're generally not plugged in. And something else went along with this too. Our ranch manager, John Hurlbuck, we've been friends for pushing forty years, and He's a really interesting guy. You know, he has his own uh, musical thing, and he's a storyteller. He picks songs that he likes. And so and I've been playing with him off and on. Like when we did our faux restaurant, we, we played for the lunch crowd. We've been doing all this silly stuff together. But I really like playing with it. And so I went, you know, in, in the beginning of June, I went, you know, John, here we are sitting around. Here I've got time on my hands. Ne- this will never happen again. Let's you and me make an album together. So I got my friend, Justin, he's the drummer in Hot Tuna, but he's Larry Campbell's production partner. And we, and he came down, brought a studio on a box down to, to the ranch. And John and I cut 24 songs in two days. And we never did more than two takes. Live, no music magic, no overdubbing, completely acoustic. And I'm basically, I'm an accompanist. I'm playing lead guitar, not an acoustic guitar. And he's accompanying himself and singing the songs. And so, you know, most people think about, well, well, you're not the drummer. You're not featuring yourself. I got to do with John Hurlbut what I got to do with the airplane, which is to, to try to make a singer, the rest of the band sound great. You know, when I'm doing Hot Tuna, I'm the front guy. When I'm playing Yorma, I'm obviously the front guy. So so we've been buying these, these, uh, these reissue stuff from this, this company in France called the culture factory they reissued a whole bunch of stuff like hot tuna stuff, Jefferson Airplane stuff, where they recreated the original album exactly as it was, but in a CD format. And Johnny knows one of the guys and he calls him up and tells him what we're doing. He says, I would you like a record company that puts your album out. <laughs> I told John, do you re- hot tuna? couldn't get a record deal today, you know? Right. And, and so, so in the, in the blink of an eye, of us recording this thing we got a record deal and they're going to do a double album for us. And we're going to have an album that's going to be coming out in the fall for, for uh, the record store day and next year also with, you know, and they're going to do a 12 page booklet with photos and all kinds of stuff. I mean, I told John, I said, do you realize how lucky we are in this day and age that we get to do something like this? It's unbelievable. So, yeah. so yeah. And so, so me and Johnny have a record coming out, you know? And so, we're fired up about that.
0: That's amazing. That's really amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. And somebody that would invest in, like, to your point, the packaging and sort of making it. It's one thing to just digitize it and make it available for people to download or whatever, but to actually sure. make the investment. Oh, yeah. In the they're gonna, they're gonna
1: do, there's going to be limited runs of vinyl, 180 grain of vinyl. Um, uh, that's coming out first. And then next year, we're going to do the CDs and, and downloads, of course, because that's, that's the deal. But I, I mean, to me, like when I did Blue Country Heart in the early 2000s, the mm-hmm. A&R guy, of e. that when I was talking about doing that, he goes, Yorma, why do you want to do this? You could do it yourself and it would be cheaper because doing Blue Country Heart wound up cost me money. And my answer was for the cachet, because if it's not on a real label to me, it's not real, you know. And it was a perfect storm for us that year because I got a Grammy nomination. A lot of that, I made a great record and a lot of stuff happened. But that's but to nice. me, being the old guy that I am, to actually be able to do a project for a company that has a trademark, whatever it is, it's like a big deal.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. As as you've gone back um, to re-listen to some of the music after not doing so for a long time, um, Sure. So do you think that's hard to listen to because of where you were at. Is there a, do you do you have any cringe cringeworthy moments where you just where, where where it hurts a little or or mercifully
1: no. Now I will I mean I've gotten to the point now where you know I I don't really have any secrets anymore. And when somebody when somebody likes to ha- has some grainy video of me doing something back in the in, in the 70s or the or the 80 early 80s whatever, when I'm obviously <laughs> really drunk or something like that, I go I. I I'd probably prefer not to They go, oh, you want to put this out as a CD. I go, I mean, as a DVD, I don't think so. You know, I, I guess that's as cringeworthy as it gets. But in terms of the, uh, of the music that we made back then with the airplane with Hot Tuna, like, like, like Ness and I are pottering around the ranch yesterday, and Grace calls me out of the blue just to talk, you know. And I, was, I told her the same thing. I said, listen, you know, I've been listening to all of our old stuff because I'm going to be snagging some airplane songs for the, for the quarantine concerts as, as time goes on. And I got to tell you, I said, I listen to stuff and I go, wow, we were pretty good. And she said, I feel the same thing. You know, and with the other thing I said, you were having listened to a lot of, of airplane stuff recently. Like I was, just, I was just listening to the volunteers yesterday when I was going to pick the kid up at volleyball practice. I'm listening to a song like uh, uh, like We Can Be Together. You huh. know, I don't know how something like that plays today to a younger audience that doesn't, that, that really just thinks about the 60s as a party in the summer of love. But there was, you know, for those of us that were there, there was more to it than that. Yes, some of the political ideas are naive in, in, in the light of today's world, but we were, the Jefferson Airplane was an was it was a culturally, artistically and intellectually honest band, whether you agreed with us or not. And even though we wanted to be commercially successful, we did not care about being commercial. And looking back at that, that that's an artistic integrity that I'm proud of. And so I don't find any of those moments cringeworthy at all. And there might be some moments <laughs> that I prefer not to share with the world, but generally speaking I'm okay.
0: Yeah, I think that that's a really fascinating point about the airplane. That record in particular is like that. Uh, volunteers just started to meet the culmination of of everything coming together. the, the songwriting, the ly- the political lyric, um, obviously sure. the musicianship. That that's just some of the tracks on there. Eskimo Blue Day. Like I listen to that record. I go back to it even now. Yeah. And uh, it's yeah. Just, it's it's such a it's such a great summation of that era. And 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 also to your point. Um, it's a bit. I think it's a, it's it is frustrating to me as a fan and listener that um, that there isn't a way to introduce that music to younger people, sort of at scale. Because I do think people would be very surprised about the freshness of it and the relevancy of it. And that it it wasn't. I think well. that it,
1: you know having a having a teenage daughter who occasionally turns me on to, to music I find interesting. And some of the stuff is just—it just doesn't interest me. You now she's sort of been like, you know, like for example, I've wound up really liking Frank Ocean a lot, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and sort of the, like I don't know whether it's rap or I don't know—I'm not into categories, but but uh, there's another guy that she did that did I love this. But what uh, I wouldn't have been people. Oh, an EP. Remember EPs like a 10-inch EP or something like sure. that. So this guy August '08 because uh, that was his father's birthday, did an EP of like eight, and there's sort of, I, I don't know what to call it, but there's sort of like in the rap category, something like that. But it's really powerful writing, you know. But anyway, to get back to what you're saying about grandfather and some of our stuff, in, you know, it's hard to share the soundtrack of one's life with somebody else, you know. They're going to need to discover the artistic relevance of it on their own. And I would imagine... At some point, many of them will, in the same way that we discovered stuff from the twenties and thirties, et cetera, et cetera, that was important to us. I mean, you know, you think of I just listened to Bob Dylan's new record, which I found I think it's a really good album and I found it really interesting. But the Bob Dylan soundtrack of my life record is Blonde on Blonde. That's the one. I've listened to a lot of his stuff. I think he's one of I think he is one of our greatest living writers, period. But Nothing moves me like that record. So, so, and for us to capture people that don't have that memory well to go to. You know, just a moment's got to be right, and they're going to listen to Eskimo Blue Day. What a, I mean, what a great song that is. You know, talk about being a non-typical rock and roll song. Yeah, you you picked one of the winners for sure. You know, at some point, one of these youngsters is going to go, man, fire-eating people, what's not to like about that?
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. It, I, I think it's um it's to me to indulge in a last moment of sort of nostalgia porn. I think it's a, a it, it it it's so sad that the world does not have Grace Flick in it out there singing and participating um, musically. I just I, I I love her so much. I think she's. She's such we a do. personality of the moment, you know, she'd be, yeah. Yeah, her, her voice, not only her singing voice, but her, her point of view is so relevant. Yeah. And so powerful. Well, one of the um, things, you know,
1: like, like I said, she called me out of the blue yesterday morning. We we're just talking, and you know, she has, she has ideas that I obviously don't agree with about, about elderly people playing rock and roll, you know, yeah. but you know, we're just talking about stuff and, 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 you know, and, and she goes, I just loved being, she, she said, I'm, some people didn't like being in the studio, I loved being in the studio, and I, I said, well, it really showed, you know, and then she starts talking to me about, uh, about how she still, you know, she doesn't play in public, but she's still writing songs and playing at home, and of course, I immediately went, listen, if you're ever doing a studio thing, and you need a guitar player, and you don't give me a call, I'm really going to be pissed, you know, I mean, I have no idea whether, whether whether she has any desire to do this but it really made me feel good because because i thought she just like put it behind her you know but apparently not apparently she just put the being the public creator of music behind her so i I thought wow that's that's really cool so so we may never hear it
0: but she's doing something you know what i really appreciate you sharing that because that's 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 good enough right like it's her that's her choice and it's her personal preference but i love to know that she still has that. Me you know, too. Drive and that yeah,
1: because she's one of the she's one of the great female. My it's not be great. It's one of the great female voices of my time, and you know, and as an artist also, and, and again, since since we've invoked Eskimo Blue Day, what an unbelievable piece of writing that is.
0: Yeah, and the vocal
1: performance. I just it, yeah. Well, and yeah, I, I mean, you know. I always take her vocal performance for granted because she's great Slick, but yeah, yeah, and the vocal performance. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: yeah. The, the 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 other thing I would say is I've always loved that her like her like real rhythmic chord driven piano playing. I just I, I love the, yeah. the simplicity of her piano playing is it, I not know, it's just it's great. Um well I wanna be I wanna be super respectful of your time. Um but I, I, I wanted to I wanted to ask you a, just a couple of quick things. I um sure. I it, it was a very strange coincidence. I um I told you I lived in New York for a long time and I had a, a period of time where I moved out of the city for a year or so and I lived in Mamaroneck, New York. And um if you happen to know Mamaroneck at all, you might know it as the place where uh, Reverend Davis lived for a while before he and Annie right. moved to Harlem. And sure. um the 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 place I, I rented was the mythology of it was it was it this villa that the, um, the politicians and the business leaders of New York used to use in the 20s and 30s. It was basically like they would take a boat off on the weekend, um, and it was kind of like their cat house. It was where they'd spend the weekend with their mistresses. And during <laughs> Prohibition, it's where they'd go to drink. But um, it turned out that, um, that Annie Davis, when she used to clean the building, she was a house cleaner. Um, And she was basically, it was a you know, it was one of the places she worked. And, um, you know, it all adds up to nothing, but it was such a fascinating, you know, just little anecdote. And, um, you know, I I think about him so much as such a, he's such a pivotal figure of guitar players in your generation. Absolutely. And I wonder, maybe it's an unfair question, but what is it about Gary Davis that's so captivated you guys?
1: You know, it, it, it's absolutely not an unfair question, and it's not one I've, that has a simple answer to it. I got turned on to Reverend Davis in 1960 at Antioch College by by my, a guy who became my friend, Ian Buchanan, who's no longer with us, unfortunately. But but when I listened to it, you know, I'd, I'd always been sort of enamored of fingerstyle guitar, but I'd never seen it done. I'd never known anybody that did it. Um, and so that that's a spring quarter at Antioch where where I was living in a house with Ian, who was a masterful player, even though Lonnie Johnson was his muse, Reverend Davis was his buddy. and He knew a lot of stuff, but he he didn't study him like, like Stefan Grossman, and some of the other guys did. So anyway, so, so he turned me on to the, to the Reverend and there was just something about, there's just something about the music. Now, you know, here I am, uh, you know, a, a non-observant Jewish guy what is so attractive about this about this it's this extremely christian music in general and, and the answer is it was just way more than that i mean you know um there's, there, there's just a, i always felt that reverend davis was a, was a biophile i mean he he was just a lover of life and you know i'm if you, if you haven't read his Say No to the Devil biography, it's a must-read. you got to get it. But anyway, you know, I mean, here's a guy that was born born in the 1800s that did not have an easy life on any possible level, being yeah. born a man of color in the Carolinas at that time, being blind, I and mean, all this kind of stuff, you know. Um, but, and, and I, like I said, I never studied with the Reverend, but I met him a number of times, and he was just, there was, there was never a not upbeat moment with him that I experienced. And so, and I always heard that in his music, you know, whether, whether he's doing a song like Bad Company Brought Me Hair, you know, Screw the Death Cap on My Head, or Death Don't Have no Mercy, or Bright Side Somewhere, or, there's, or, or I'll Be Our Right Someday. I mean, whatever it was, whether, whether it was a, a song with a, a sort of a more realistic, dour outlook, or an Everything's Gonna Be Our Right song, there was, there was always joy submerged in the art, you know. And as a guitar player, it just grabbed me. Now, it didn't grab me in the way that, it, that some people did because I don't have the talent to mimic other people, which as a professional musician, it has served me well over the years. But in those days, I got a lot of criticism for, well, Reverend didn't do it that way. And I go, well, what can I tell you, you know. But there's just something so so incredibly powerful about what I perceived of uh, as his love of life and sharing it with a world that had to be another galaxy from the one that he grew up with in the Carolinas. You know, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. It really is. And, you know, and just to fast forward to the present, uh, more or less, I mean, the fact that Peter, Paul, and Mary recorded Samson and Delilah, even there was a lawsuit involved in that, but it's okay because the, he made a bunch of money off that song that was a hit and guys like me that recorded this song and, and there's a lots of guys like me that did that stuff that allowed him and annie to live in their own home and have a southern place i mean not just one home so i mean here's a guy that didn't drive that owned two cars you know So, anyway <laughs> right right two cars and probably a revolver but that's another story it's in the book yeah. you know yeah yeah. anyway, so I was doing a gig, I don't know, a couple years ago, and I'm out in Rockville Center. He and Annie are buried at this at this absolutely unpretentious little uh cemetery in Rockville Center in Long Island. And I went there and uh, you know, I put a stone on his grave and uh, and it was cool. But I mean to get back to your question, there, there was just something so positively seductive about every aspect of his music to me. And you know, and I loved it so much. Like for example, like, like one of the songs that I recorded with Tunis Sally, where you get your liquor from, Ian just called the dancing. I didn't even know that it wasn't called that when I recorded it. I didn't even realize, you know. I mean, I just I did I did all these Reverend Gary Davis songs, and I didn't realize that Reverend Gary Davis essentially wrote them. Like like, right. like Hesitation Blues, I learned it from Ian, but it's the Reverend's version. I didn't know that till we had to do the copyright of the song. So there's something that, that I love that obviously was more than just him, but it, it but the himness of it all just sort of blanketed everything.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, you know, because that comes through in how I've grown to perceive you, especially in the last fifteen or twenty years, as, as you kind of shared different aspects of yourself in your journals and and in your some of your online work. That there is a um, there's just this real a. this natural attempt to project some positivity into the world to just like contribute some joy and you can write about and talk about heavy topics but you don't dwell on the negative aspects of them you always turn it around to where's the hidden blessing in it or where's the gift in it um and i don't think that that's trivial i mean that's an amazing attribute in this world um but it sounds like the exact same thing you're describing with Gary Davis. It's amazing. Um,
1: I, I, think that, I think that on some level, having been allowed to survive as long as I had has, has really made me grateful in a lot of ways. That being said, I'm far from perfect. And when I picked my daughter up in volleyball yesterday, for lack of a better word, I was a grumpy Gus, and I'm gonna have to apologize to her for her today. Because, because, you know, the, the, all the stuff we're going through affects us in a lot of ways, and I'm pretty upbeat most of, the, most of the time, but sometimes I'm just not. Hey, that's life, you know. And instead of taking the higher ground, I kind of took it out on her. So I'm going to have to apologize about that. But but generally speaking, you know, as, as somebody that's alive in this world, um, I'm really grateful to be here. Is there stuff to complain about? You bet there is, you know. But but it doesn't have to dominate my existence. Like I think it used to before, before I got sober. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I understand that. All right. One last question and then I'll, I'll mercifully uh, let you go. Um, I was listening (laughs) to, (laughs) listening to an interview with with GE Smith a couple of weeks ago and he was talking about Michael Bloomfield and he made the comment that when he heard Michael Bloomfield and when he's heard other blues players talk about Michael Bloomfield, the comment was that, and I'm sort of paraphrasing, was that um, he really played the blues. He wasn't just some guy, some white guy playing the blues. He really played the blues the right way. True. And and I wonder what playing the blues the right way. What does that mean? What does that mean to you? That
1: yeah, I, I know exactly what he means, and it's it's going to be hard to really put my finger on it. So. So I've got Michael Bloomfield's biography. Michael Bloomfield, Guitar King, is next to my bed. It weighs like 20 pounds. It's been intimidating, you know. Uh, but I'm but I'm going to read it because I also was a huge Michael Bloomfield fan. When 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 uh, uh, the Butterfield Blues Band put out East West, which I think is a seminal American album of any epoch, um, and they came to San Francisco to tour. The airplane had just gotten together. Signe was still in the band. It was pre-Grace. I was playing a Rickenbacker 12 string and a Guild Thunderbird. And Michael Bloomfield, for some reason, when the Butterfield Blues Band came to town, for some reason, he and his wife at the time came over to our place, uh, my ex-wife's in my place, uh, in the Western edition, to have dinner. And for some reason, you know, because, you know, I love – blues, but I, I didn't know how to, i never played electric guitar before. I didn't know how to do that stuff. For some reason, um, he took it upon himself to show me, you know, kind of what it was all about, bending strings, you know, using, because we didn't have pedals back then, using amps to, you know, get sustained and overdrive and stuff like this. And as I got to know him a little bit and talked to him, I realized, well, here's this guy from an upper-class Jewish family who loved the blues and went you, you know, in a in a you know whether segregation was or wasn't wasn't um, the law of the land back then, it, you know, it was still a pretty segregated country. And you know, for him to go into the area where blues was being played in Chicago and to be accepted by the players of that time as their equal and to be brought into the fold, it wasn't like I'm going to teach you to play the blues. He obviously had so much passion that they said come and play with me, you know? So, so the, you know, the, the guitar, the, the, the quote unquote level of guitar playing, the bar, has been raised exponentially since I was a kid, as it should be. But, but the truth of what happens in real blues players cannot be taught. And so, you know, if somebody's, you know, you hear all these kids that are like, like they're really, they're technically really great guitar players. And, and I love that and I admire it because, I, because I'm a guitar player. But listen to a Hubert Sumlin accompaniment mm. on any Howlin' Wolf cut that he's on or something like that. I mean, there's just something so honest and primal about being a blues player. And Michael Bloomfield, even though he's a much more knowing player than, than, uh, than Hubert was, Michael had that. He wasn't just playing the guitar, he was playing the blues. So it's kind of hard to really give a, give a real, uh, sort of illiterate literate, definition to this question but but you, you know it and I, this is really a mixed metaphor but i'm going to throw it out there. it's you know it's it's like pornography it's hard to define but you know it when you see it you know <laughs> blues it's it, it's hard to define but you know it when you hear it
0: well that's a great note to leave on yorma um thank you so much for your generosity of of spirit and, um, and uh just you know, for me personally, all the music you've given me over the years, um, its I feel like well, my uh, pleasure. it's always like going to see an old friend when I go see you in concert and I feel like I was catching up with somebody I haven't spoken to in a while. So um, please stay well, healthy. Well, I hope we actually, yeah,
1: thanks so much. I, I hope we get a chance to, to actually say hello in the real world one of these days. I'm sure we will, and you know, people talk about this and then look, honestly, none of us have any idea what's gonna happen, but something's gonna happen. and and until it and and until it does we're gonna we're gonna keep on going with our quarantine concerts and uh you know and i look forward at some point to getting back out on the road again i mean look you know life goes on it'll be different but hopefully we'll be smiling and uh like i said i hope to see you in person and uh you can show me around uh hopefully it won't be a rainy season when i'm up there
0: Thank you, Yorma and Vanessa Kaukinen, and thank you, Cash Edwards, for making this conversation happen. Thanks to Aunt Taylor and the entire team at Light. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit us at lyte.com. And as always, thank you, the listener, for joining us with Spotlight On. We're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you like to get your podcasts from. And please, while you're grabbing our podcast, leave a rating and a review. It's so important to our ongoing success. As always, keep your feedback coming. Reach me directly at lp at light.com. Thank you so so much. Be safe and stay in touch. Thank you.
1: I think he's out with a hovercraft somewhere.